the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer, and we're glad to have you with us. Among other things, we're going to talk with Dino Kartsanakis. He's the co-author of Hymn Restoration. It's a book that encourages old and new generations to reconsider the hymns. It's a devotional. It provides some history and background on the writing of the hymns, the uh, hymn writers themselves. And it's just a fun uh, way to reflect on and refresh our recollection of the value of hymns. So Dino, uh, and yes, it's that Dino. Uh, He'll be joining us later this hour. Also, we're going to remember an old friend. Um, I say that because H.B. London, who passed away in October, uh, passed away as a friend of KPDQ and Focus on the Family. Uh, a lot going on, but since uh, the, his passing, we wanted to take a few moments to look back and remember the life and legacy of H.B. London. That's coming up uh, in the next hour of today's program. Well, taking a look at uh, news as it's developing today, the president is going to argue for wall, the wall uh, before the nation uh, later today in about two hours. Uh, He's going to make his case for a border wall directly to the American people when he addresses the nation from the Oval Office tonight. And this is the first time he's given this particular address, this kind of address from the Oval Office. He's expected to highlight border security, press Democrats for the wall funding uh, he has demanded amid a partial government shutdown. That's now in its third week and shows no sign of ending. Now, it was thought earlier that the president was very likely to declare a state of emergency Uh, and uh, move forward with the wall, it seems less likely, according to sources uh, close to the president. Well, the president's primetime address will come from the Oval Office, a first in his presidency. Democratic leaders House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, they've requested equal airtime to respond to the president's primetime address. His address comes days before he's set to travel to the southern border. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders announced the president's plans in a tweet on Monday. Well, Americans will receive their tax refunds despite the ongoing partial government shutdown, according to the administration. The White House Office of Management and Budget said uh, yesterday that the Internal Revenue Service will still send out tax refunds in the event of the shutdown carries on into the tax season. Officials said that they want to make the shutdown as painless as possible for citizens. Monday's announcement is a reversal of the traditional policy whereby Americans are allowed to pay taxes during a shutdown, but refunds are not issued. The president said over the weekend that the shutdown standoff could last a really long time. Now, this is good news for American taxpayers, for those who are directly affected by the, um, the shutdown because they are federal employees, not so much. Well, new California Governor Gavin Newsom has unveiled a new health care plan that aims to give more benefits to illegal immigrants, protects Obamacare and push his uh, state even further left. 
Progressive Democrats in California won a veto-proof supermajority in the state legislature in November and control all statewide offices. Medi-Cal, which is the state's health insurance program, now will let illegal immigrants remain on the rolls until they are 26 years of age, according to the governor's new agenda. Well, the previous age cutoff was 19, as the Sacramento Bee reported. As one of his first orders of business on Monday, Governor Newsom declared his intent to reinstate the Obamacare individual mandate at the state level. A federal judge in Texas last month ruled that the individual mandate was unconstitutional, a decision that will inevitably, inevitably, let's pronounce it correctly, be challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court. And days after her profanity-laced call to impeach President Trump, freshman Michigan Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib uh, is under fire for an alleged anti-Semitic reference on Twitter. Responding to a post by Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders on Monday, uh, she suggested that Senate Republicans were more loyal to Israel than the United States amid a report that GOP leaders were planning to introduce a bill that would punish companies that participate in the so-called boycott, divestment, and sanctions global movement against Israel. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, one of the Republican senators to introduce the anti-BDS bill, immediately called Tlaib's uh, post an anti-Semitic line that perpetuates a long-standing dual loyalty conspiracy that Israel effectively controls Washington politicians. And on this day in 2011, U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords, a Democrat from Arizona, was shot and critically wounded when a gunman opened fire as the congresswoman met with constituents in Tucson. Six people were killed. Twelve others also are injured. And on this day in 1998, Ramsey Yosef, the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, is sentenced in New York to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And on this day in 1935, Elvis Presley is born in Tupelo, Mississippi. Are you an Elvis fan, Clark? Yeah, I never really got it. I I have to admit I'm not an Elvis fan. I can't think of a song that I would get excited about hearing, but, you know. He was uh, before my generation, and maybe that's why I wasn't in the big excitement when he came out. You know, I remember when the Beatles came out. So, I mean, I was little, but still I remember. You're frowning like I'm ancient of days. It wasn't that long ago. Anyway, he's looking puzzled. Well, as I mentioned, the president is going to address the nation on border security. As the vice president says, Democrats won't negotiate. The president has planned a meeting the day after today's address. We'll see what happens. On the eve of the president's primetime address to the nation about border security, the vice president had asserted that congressional Democrats were unwilling to negotiate. After weekend talks, senior Democratic congressional staffers agreed with the Trump administration officials that a a crisis exists at the southern border, but weren't ready to negotiate a plan to address it, Pence said on Monday. Senior Democratic staff didn't dispute our facts about the border, Pence told reporters at a briefing in the Eisenhower Executive Office building held in the same conference room where the weekend talks occurred. The president is trying to reach an agreement with congressional Democrats to gain funding for a wall along the southern border and in the partial government shutdown that began the 22nd of December. Uh, The president announced on Monday that he will deliver the address to the nation tonight, uh, then visit the border on Thursday. They informed us that they would not negotiate until the government is opened, the vice president said. The president is not going to reopen the government on the promise that negotiations will go on sometime after. Now, in his uh, defense, that sort of promise has been made before. You give us this, 
uh, and we will give you that, and it never the that never actually materializes. So historically, that doesn't really work for both sides. But Democrats asked the administration for revised budget estimates based on the president's request for increased border security. Well, the biggest request from the president is the revision uh, in the revision rather is five point seven billion dollars for construction of a steel border wall, a four point one billion dollar increase from the Senate passed bill in December, designed to keep the government running. Well, the vice president got multiple questions about the president's comment on Friday that he has considered declaring a national emergency to build and pay for the wall. The vice president said he hopes it doesn't come to that, adding that he believes Democrats care about border security. What I'm aware of is that he is looking at it. The president is considering it. There is no reason in the world that Congress shouldn't be about rolling their sleeves up and compromising and working together on the crisis on the southern border. While many Democrats voted in 2006 to build fencing or another barrier along the border, but the needed money never had been appropriated. Congress has funded most of the government. The current shutdown affects only about 25 percent of the government, including the Departments of Agriculture, Commerce, Justice, Homeland Security, State and Transportation. The vice president said he sympathizes with the 800,000 federal employees affected by the partial shutdown, but also with tens of millions of Americans who expect the government to provide stronger border security. We'll see what happens when the president speaks, when the rebuttal follows and the meeting takes place tomorrow. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Twenty-one minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, in fact, in our next two segments, Dino Kartsinakis will be my guest. He's the co-author, along with his wife, Cheryl, of Hymn Restoration. It is a uh, treasury of... Um of old hymns, but not just that. It's 101 of them with devotions as well. And there's a bit of history uh, with each hymn. So we're going to talk with him about that and the value of those old hymns to contemporary worship. Well, the president's looking for a way around the uh, stalemate, if you will, and he might have found one. Some are projecting that he's announced that he will announce that he might declare a national emergency and use that as a pretext to build a border wall that he promised and ran on. Now, whether or not that's entirely possible, we'll talk about in a moment. But this move could solve the shutdown problem, at least for this year. It would do so by, at the expense of proper constitutional order, however, and that certainly wouldn't be foreign to Washington. But even if this ad hoc solution is plausibly legal, it's a pretty bad way to government and just govern rather and just another sign that Congress has relinquished far too much of its rightful authority to oversee the executive branch. Well, let's look at what it actually might mean if the, gov- the president decides that he is going to declare an emergency. So what is a national emergency? Well, it's outlined in the National Emergencies Act of 1976. The president has the authority to declare emergencies, unlocking certain provisions when the country is threatened by crisis exigency or emergency circumstances other than wars or natural disasters. A 2007 report from the Congressional Research Office explained it that way. Well, the president's um, border wall is uh, under consideration for just such a declaration of an emergency. Some of these provisions include the ability to seize commodities or property, control production, transportation and communication, institute martial law or restrict travel, according to the report. Well, this has been tried before. I believe it was the steel industry, and that didn't turn out so well for then sitting President Truman, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, can the president use it for 
a border wall. Well, the president's continued reassurance that he could declare a national emergency to build a wall has legal scholars and lawmakers at odds with each other over whether he would even have the authority to do it. And if it's possible, presidents do have the authority to defend the nation. That's a quote from acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Representative Adam Smith, the new Armed Services Committee chair, told ABC's this week that the president would have the ability to make such a move, earning him a shout out from the president on Twitter, but noted it would almost certainly be met with legal challenges. As Yale law professor Bruce Ackerman pointed out in a column in The New York Times, Congress does have the ability to rein in an emergency declaration. Although Republicans control the Senate and Democrats have the House, Ackerman argued that it's still possible for lawmakers to reject the declaration. Now, the uh, the extent of that uh, power is also in question. Does the president have the authority to seize private property upon which most of the wall would have to be placed? So that's that's another um, question. Uh, can we uh, point to an example in history? And I mentioned just briefly um, Harry Truman. I may have gotten that wrong. But anyway, during the Korean War, um, some of you might recall that President Truman sought to take control of the country's steel mills in an attempt to circumvent a planned nationwide strike among workers through an executive order. The Supreme Court ultimately ruled in a Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer that the president did not have such authority. If Harry Truman couldn't authorize the steel industry during wartime, this president doesn't have the power to declare an emergency and build a multi-billion dollar wall on the border. Again, that's a quote from Representative Adam Schiff, the Democratic chair of the Intelligence Committee, speaking to CNN. So, again, there's uh, an ongoing debate as to whether or not he has the authority under this set of circumstances to do just that. Well, meanwhile, Kellyanne Conway, who's the senior counselor to President Trump, uh, said on Monday that lawyers inside the White House are researching the legal implications of declaring a national emergency to build the border wall and place the blame squarely on Congress and the courts for the crisis of the southern border. In a wide-ranging interview in the Ingraham uh, angle, uh, Conway said that the president is considering using a national uh, emergency declaration to circumvent Congress and the budget stalemate in Washington. President, as you know, wants $5.6 billion to fund that wall. Well, declaring a national emergency would draw legal challenges. Uh, and the president, who lo- told lawmakers he would be willing to keep the government closed for months or even years, has said that he would like to continue negotiations for now, which, by the way, will resume tomorrow. There are probably some people who want him, referring to the president, to declare it the emergency so that Congress again can fail to do its job, she said. The Congress and the courts have failed to do their jobs up to this point. They've given us the crisis. Well, Conway defended the use of the word crisis to describe the situation at the border and talked about illegal drugs that enter the U.S. from Mexico. The talks over ending the shutdown have been at an impasse over the president's demand for the wall. He's offered to build the barrier of steel rather than concrete, billing the uh, that is a concession to Democrats' objections. They don't like concrete, so we'll give them steel. I doubt that it's quite that simple. Democrats have made clear that they object to the wall itself, not how it's constructed. They see it as immoral and ineffective and prefer other types of border security funded at already agreed upon levels. Well, the president announced that he will address the nation today, tonight, in fact, in about an hour and a half Uh, before traveling later this week on Thursday to the U.S.-Mexico border as he seeks to highlight border security and presses Democrats for wall funding with the protracted standoff uh, that triggered a partial government shutdown 
uh, now stretching into its 18th day. I am pleased to inform you that I will address the nation on the humanitarian and national security crisis on our southern border Tuesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern, the president tweeted on Monday. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and top Senate uh, Democrat Chuck Schumer called on the uh, networks to give Democrats a chance to respond uh, in um, duplicate now that the television networks have decided to air the president's address, which if uh, his past statements are any indication, they went on to say, will be full of malice and misinformation. Democrats must immediately be given equal time. Well, several of the networks have said they will fact check the president throughout. Let's hope that same um, courtesy is extended to the uh, rebuttal speeches as well. And again, there will be two of them rather than the typical one. We'll see what um, what has happened. Well, coming up, we're going to talk in just a couple of minutes with Dino Kartsanakis. He's a co-author, and you probably, uh, those of you who have been around for a minute or two, recall uh, Dino is a highly touted um, musician, a piano player. He's received several Dove Awards and Grammy nominations and so on. He's uh, written scores for television and movies, uh, and he's going to talk with us about why he believes it's important uh, for the hymns to be regarded in the in worship and the uh, what was described as worship wars some years ago is probably less so today, but there are concessions being made all across the uh, the country where traditional or contemporary uh, is the, the choice. The younger people go to the contemporary, the older people go to the traditional, loud music or soft music, hands raised, hands down, uh, piano or guitar. Um, the church is accommodating people, and what he is suggesting in his book, which is a devotional that provides some historic context, is that uh, hymns have a place and should have a place in worship, regardless of the style uh, that's chosen by a particular church or preferred by a particular generation. So we'll talk with uh, Dino Kartsanakis about that in just a bit. Also, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about the death of H.B. London. It actually occurred back in October, but with events uh, that prevented me from taking the time to pay tribute, I wanted to make sure we did that early in 2019. We'll recall the life and legacy of H.B. London, who inspired a pastor appreciation. Again, he died in 2018 in October. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, you know how it goes. Traditional or contemporary music? Loud music or soft? Should we raise our hands or keep them down? Should we have all guitars or maybe a piano? It's evident that churches are trying to accommodate changing times and struggling in the process when it comes to worship and the kinds of music to choose. Well, Grammy Award winner and eight-time Dove Award winner Dino Kartsanakis, um, he says that we need to honor today's young musicians and composers, but hymns from the past are vital as well. The depth and the lyrics of past centuries contain vast wealth for moving us toward God. In the book he co-authored with his wife Cheryl, Hymn Restoration, um, they pick 101 hymns, give background, and an accompanying uh, devotion for each. Um, according to recent research, most pastors don't prioritize worship as a main thrust of their church ministry. Some churches, about 73%, have more than one service working to gratify people with different tastes for worship. But I wonder if we might come together around, well, the use of hymns. While Kartsanakis doesn't knock contemporary worship, he does suggest younger generations with a desire for rich content should be introduced to the lyrics of older hymns, which lead to the authenticity and quality millennials say they're looking for. Music should lead us to a fuller understanding of God and the hymns certainly have the capacity to do just that. Well, Dino Kartsanakis is a Grammy Award winning composer. 
uh, nominee for Chariots of Fire. He ha- is an eight-time Dove Award winner. He studied music at King's College and piano at Juilliard, the Music Conservatory in Germany and the Conservatory of Fontainebleau in France. Um, he studied under Arthur Rubinstein, played at Carnegie Hall, the Hollywood Bowl, and the Lincoln Center, among many, many other accolades. He joins us today to talk about the book he and his wife co-authored, Hymn Restoration, 101 Treasured Hymns with Devotions. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, I'm sitting at the piano just playing as you were reading. <laughs> in fact, I was thinking to myself, it just seems peculiar to have you on an interview without uh, without playing. <laughs> exactly. I got to be at the piano, right? <laughs> there you go. How are you today? I'm doing very well. It's nice to talk with you awesome. and to to reflect on the value of the hymns that many of us grew up with, but others of us have rarely heard. What inspired you to take up this uh, this quest, if you will, to um, restore hymns to our music vocabulary? Well, uh, it started, I'll leave it back to uh, the beginning of this year when Dr. Bill Graham passed away. Mm. Now, I had been doing face, face, uh, FaceTime, uh, Facebook Live for the past year at, on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time. Tonight I'm doing 7 because of the, of the president's address. You know? mm-hmm. But uh, so this, the, one, the day that Dr. Bill Graham passed away, I said to my wife Cheryl, I, I want to just go to the piano and let's do this, let's do something live to dedicate to Dr. Billy Graham. And of course, the music was a major part of his crusades. Uh, and of course, the, the hymns they sang was like uh, Jesus saves and and uh, you know, Pistol Sweet of Trust in Jesus. You know, all these wonderful hymns that I don't I don't think a lot of churches are singing today. For the past 10 years, they kind of gone down, you know, and faded away. And so when I was doing this live uh, and playing this music, uh, people were commenting. I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't, we could not read. It was coming in so quickly while I was playing these hymns. Uh, we, it was about half a million people that day that came in to tell me that had been watching saying, Dino, thank you so much. Hmm. dedicating this to Dr. Billy Graham. And those hymns, we don't hear these. This is what they're telling me. We're not seeing these hymns in our church anymore. Thank you for playing them. Oh, we need to bring them back. The one comment after another just kept coming in like that. And it was though the Lord was telling me, you know, maybe we need to tap back into that again. There's a, there's a man out there. People really want the hymns back in our church. You know, it's interesting. We just started uh, one of the larger choirs here in the Portland area, just started uh, having a hymn sing twice a year. And it's amazing how many people come and say the same thing that you're you're, uh, saying right here, that people really miss those hymns. And it's not just nostalgia. There's something rich uh, in those lyrics that people miss. Yeah, it's it's not a nostalgia. It's what it is. It's it's lyrics that are doctrinally correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me tell you about the hymn book. So, so I'll go back to that Facebook time. So all these people were saying, Dino, please keep playing those hymns. So fast forward, we came out with Hymn Restoration. And uh, do you have that there? Mm-hmm. Have you gotten a copy? I do. Oh, great, great, great. And uh, so with my Facebook family, we came up with 101 uh, very favorite hymns. And, uh, and that's what's in the book, 101 hymns. But I thought, would it be great to tell the story that's behind the hymn, how it was, why it was written? And so I asked Cheryl, because she's done some writing, I asked my wife, I said, Cheryl, would you uh, 
would you take on this project? And, and to, absolutely, to see, to grow up in the church like I did, and singing these wonderful hymns. So, again, the past over, she wrote 101 devotions that go with it. A little historic background, as you can see there, uh, when the composer wrote it and why he wrote it, and, and like I said, uh, something that's really uh, devotional for people to think about and pray about, and then it ends with a, with a prayer. So that's why we down on the left, pay, uh, left side of the book is the hymn, and the right side of the book is the, the writing, the devotional. And, and I should I'm mention... I should mention that yes. when you have the hymn on the left side of the page, it's the actual hymn with the with the music yeah. as well, so people can sing it as yes. it was written. Yes, yes. And the Nordskog Publishing Company, dear people, the owner Jerry uh, Nordskog and his wife Gail, uh, we had become friends uh, even before this hymnal idea came up. And one day at dinner or wherever, we, I think we were in Israel, I said, you know, if they came on a, a, a trip with us to Huckabee, and I said, would you guys be interested in publishing this? And they, I mean, they jumped on it. They said, absolutely. We love, we would love to publish something like this. They've never, ever published anything musical. You know, it's always books with writings in it. So they, they said, yeah, we'd love to be a part of it. And so they're the publisher, North Scott Publishing Company. Oh, wonderful. And uh, it came out beautifully. I, I'm very proud of the book. And there's something about, these hymns that people are texting me every day saying, Dino, you don't know what, it, it just brings an atmosphere of, uh, of uh, the presence of God, even while I'm reading the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And oh. that's what it does. So my mission is to get those out again. I'm not saying you don't have to sing all these hymns in churches, but one or two besides the new, the, the new praise songs, praise and worship songs. In fact, in the introduction, the first thing you say, you write is, we honor today's young musicians and composers and the love and skill they bring to musical worship because we know that the Lord hears their hearts. Hymn Restoration yeah. is about introducing a new generation to the musical treasures of Christian history. So this is not a critique of contemporary Christian music. It's just a suggestion that we have a rich heritage that should also be yeah. included. Exactly. I'm not criticizing the new, listen, I play them. I thought that when you were saying stuff about me, I was playing uh, this, this song. It's a new season. It's a new day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and uh, that's, that's kind of current. Uh, but there's some great music that's being written right now. But still, some of the greatest music, I believe, was written when Fanny Crosby sat at that piano yeah. with, with such an anointing and, and all these other wonderful people who've had a story behind why they wrote that hymn. And they've gone through some valleys, and, and you know, there's always water down at, at the bottom of the valley. So, you know, uh, we, we can drink on that and just come back up to the mountaintop mm. by some of these wonderful, wonderful hymns. Now, this is a terrible question to ask a musician, but do you have a favorite among them? Oh, my goodness, there's so many. Uh, of course, It Is Well With My Soul is yes. always, you know, it's been a favorite. And I'm just looking at the list right here. Near the cross, the power. Uh, there's power in the blood, and and uh, the, the love of God. Uh, there's just so many of them. You know, I can't. I really can't select any uh, any one that is my favorite. You know, I love them all. Yeah, it's sort of a foolish question because it's like asking which one of your children do you love the most, or which one do you think is the cutest? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How did your wow. love for music start? Well, it just started at the age of three. You know, I mean, um, 
you know, my testimony is that I was to be a stillborn child. And I'm not going to get into it too heavily, so because we don't have a whole lot of time, but doctors had said I was going to be born dead. My parents, you know, prayed. My dear Greek grandma, she prayed, got on her knees and prayed, and she saw a vision of the enemy, the devil, having a grip around my mother's waist while she was praying with me. And she, she actually, she lived in New York City on the fifth floor, apartment house. And as she was praying and rebuking the enemy, you know, which we can do based on the Word of God, uh, and uh, she actually saw this vision of the devil and, and then let go of my mother, and she heard the devil running down five flights of stairs. That's how real the devil is, you know. And uh, as a result of that, well, I was born alive, you know, and but my life was dedicated to the Lord. Age three, is the very first song I ever played is, is in the hymn book. And it's at the cross. Mm. Yeah, at the cross, at the cross, my first little light. And, yes. Uh, so uh, that's the first hymn that I heard in church at the age of three. Came home and started playing it. You know, very basic, very simple with the melody. But uh, Sunday after Sunday, I come home with a different hymn, a gospel song. Hmm. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dino Kartsanakis. He, along with his wife, Cheryl, have authored Hymn Restoration, 101 Treasured Hymns with Devotions. And I love reading the stories behind the hymns, as well as the devotionals that go along with them. We'll take a quick break. We'll be con- uh, we will continue, rather, our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dino Kartsanakis. He is a Grammy Award winning uh, composer, eight time Dove Award winner. He studied music at King's College and piano at Juilliard. Uh, he played, has played at Carnegie Hall, the Hollywood Bowl, the Lincoln Center, and many other impressive places. He and his wife, Cheryl, who has performed as a vocalist for the past 25 years, uh, have co-authored the book Hymn Restoration, 101 Treasured Hymns with Devotions. And it's a fascinating uh, recollection for some of us and perhaps uh, introduction for others uh, to the great hymns of the faith. And it's just a great resource and call to uh, um, bring those hymns back. Now, as you uh, selected the hymns uh, that are in this book, you and and your uh, followers, uh, did you find yourself playing and singing them even when you were all by yourself? Well, you know, these hymns are ingrained in my very, you know, of my of my heart and my in my blood in my blood <laughs> background, whatever you want to call it. Because you know, the first song I played was at the cross when I was three three years old, like I said a while ago, and and uh, so I've I've played these songs over the years. So this is such a part of my background, my history. Uh, so I, I was uh, uh, the church pianist when I was about nine years old, and and every Sunday we'd sing these hymns, standing on the promises, and and uh, you know just one after another. Mm-hmm. So so this is something that is just so much a part of me, and I was so happy to see the response on Facebook, people saying thank you for playing this, and that just spoke to my heart. And I thought, how exciting is this now? to put out a hymn book, bring it out real fresh and uh, with a new, uh, you know, look perhaps, you know, in the writing and, and, uh, and get our young people to be acquainted with. You know, I'm finding that young people are reading this book and, the, and looking at the music saying, wow, this is cool. Yeah, yeah. This is cool. It's like brand new to them. Now, your book highlights some of the greatest hymns ever written. What do you think is the difference between these 
old hymns of the faith and what we call contemporary worship today? Well, you know, I believe in the repetition. Because mm-hmm. I think the more you say the same thing, it becomes embedded in your heart, your mind, and so on. And I think that's, that's the deal with, uh, with the newer uh, contemporary songs, you know. And, uh, and it's not bad, but there's some other songs that are new that give some really good thoughts and, you know, about, about, uh, about the blood of Jesus and the worship of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But there's something about the hymns. They're, they're so doctrinally, uh, how should I say, that? it's based on the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And, and what you sing and what you, the words, the lyrics are so right on. I mean, they really are. And, uh, and I just think, if you didn't even sing the hymn, just read the lyrics. It'll really bless you. Yeah. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an anointing on, on those hymns. You know, in our church, uh, we sing the newer things, and I'm right there worshiping the Lord and clapping along and on my feet, praising God. But when they start singing, uh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the, I mean, it just brings a whole new level into the into the atmosphere of worship, it sounds louder. It sounds more. It resounds more. So, you know, I really, I really think there's something so. I don't want to use magic. I don't believe magic, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes, there's something there's profound something about the hymns of the faith. I, I really, I really believe that. You know, and that's why I've done this. Cheryl has spent hours and hours, hundreds of hours doing the research on the hymns and, and, and exploring, you know, with the background and, and writing the devotions, a lot of prayer behind it. And my, my daughter and I, Christina, who's a producer, she and I, uh, uh, you know, found the music. And uh, of course it was a lot of the titles recommended by my Facebook people that watch us every week. And so we kind of did it together. This is why it's become a Facebook project. I, even in the book, I, I acknowledge my Facebook friends, you know, well, let's talk about that Facebook project, because I know lots of folks have enjoyed your uh, your playing for many years. Uh, how can they find you on Facebook and, and follow, and, and I believe tonight, uh, Tuesday in about, night, in about you'll be playing? Six, in, a, in about six minutes, I will be on live. Uh, they go to the Dino fan page. Okay. Dino fan page. And uh, there's a lot of my older ones on there, too, the one I just did, New Year's Eve. And now because tonight it's normally 8 p.m. Central Time, but because of the president's address tonight at 8 p.m. Uh, here Central Time, I decided to make it an hour earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with much prayer for that address. <laughs> well, I appreciate so much the work that you and uh, Cheryl have done to make this volume available to us and to help remind yeah. us of some of those hymns that have had a profound impact on our journey of faith. And I hope lots of young people will also be blessed by uh, being introduced to or reminded as well of these uh, great old hymns of the faith. And have a wonderful yeah. time this afternoon. If I wasn't on the air, I would definitely tune in to you in about six minutes uh, well, as you're going to be later. playing. If you have a second, let me just tell you the next level to this. Uh, I, I am right now recording 101 of the hymns. Ah. And uh, it's, a, it's a four CD set, and I'm actually playing it for people to sing with. In other words, I'm going to accompany them. I play an introduction, first verse, last verse for 101 songs, and people are already pre-ordering these uh, these CDs, and they can do that on. Uh, let me give you let me give you the uh, the, the website for that is dinocake.com. 
B-I-N-O, and then C-A-K-E.com. The reason why it's cake, because I own a cake company. We own a cake company with the best carrot cake in the world. And by the way, this is in Branson, uh, Missouri. I, I checked that out, yeah. and uh, I was salivating just looking at some of your offerings. I'm telling you. <laughs> if I'm ever in Branson, I'm going to come <laughs> to your cake shop. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> people want to pre- pre- There's a lot of lonely people that, that, that are alone, you know, grandmas and widows and so on that, and that uh, are alone. And just by playing these CDs and just having the hymn book in front of them and sing, singing along, it, it'll yeah. bring such peace and blessing to them. Absolutely. Really Again, that's dinocake.com. And yes, it's spelled no, precisely it, no, as you... It, 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 no, it's Branson Cake. Oh. B-R-A-N-S-O-N. Cake. Branson Cake. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's Branson it. Cake. All and, right. And then to order the hymn, though, it's Nordskog Publishing Company. They need to get that first. Nordskog Publishing Company. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, and Lord bless you as you continue to serve him. Okay. Thank you, and I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Now, he mentioned that one of his favorite hymns is It Is Well With My Soul. And in the devotional, he points out that Horatio G. Spafford was a successful senior pastor in a Chicago law firm, or rather partner in a Chicago law firm. Throughout his life, he faced many tragedies that a weaker man would not have survived. The Great Fire of Chicago of 1871 wiped out his real estate holdings, destroying him financially. He lost a child to scarlet fever. In 1873, he and his family planned a trip to Europe, but at the last minute, he had to remain behind for business. He sent his wife, Anna, and four daughters on ahead. While crossing the Atlantic, their ship, the uh, Ville du Havre, Uh, was struck by an English iron sailing vessel. Water poured into the ship. Uh, The ship sank quickly, resulting in the loss of 226 people, including Spafford's four daughters. When they reached England, Spafford's wife sent him a telegraph that read, Saved Alone. Spafford immediately boarded a ship to reunite with Anna. He asked the captain to point out where his four daughters had gone down. He stood on the deck and contemplated this terrible wreck that had taken his girls. But his faith held him fast to the Lord, knowing that they are not at the bottom of the ocean, but in the arms of their heavenly father. Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul on that very difficult journey, on that very difficult spot. It's tempting to focus on tragedy in the lives of those who have suffered a great deal, but it may be more appropriate to think of survivors like Horatio Spafford as overcomers who triumph over tragedy. And then they end with a prayer, Dear Father, let us be strong in the Lord and the power of your might when tragedies overtake us and leave us weak and faithless. Let us remember this story that we might be sustained by our faith and know that God is God and has the answers for every situation in our lives. Again, from Hymn Restoration, 101 Treasured Hymns with Devotions by Dino and Cheryl Kartsanakis. And you can find that at bransoncake.com if you're interested in the uh, CDs that he's uh, producing so, to be sung along with. And I'm wondering if they're in the traditional keys, which, by the way, are ex- extremely high for most people today. Um, but anyway, uh, so you can sing along with them, 101 Treasured hymns, and you can also learn more about um, the book. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll uh, continue to take a look at some of the uh, news as it is developing and has developed throughout the day. And later in the program, we're going to recall the life and legacy of H.B. London, who went home to be with the Lord uh, late last year. He inspired Pastor Appreciation Month as well. So we'll talk about that when we return the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer and Clark Hilton, engineer of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your afternoon. Just a quick reminder, 6 o'clock p.m. our time, the president will address... Uh, the nation on national security from the Oval Office. This is the first of his presidency to do so. That will be followed immediately by a rebuttal by both um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, which is somewhat unusual. Usually you have one rebuttal, but both of them uh, will be rebutting the president. It's already been said by some who will be covering the president. There was some debate on whether or not to give him the airtime he requested, as is typical for the the chief executive, whether or not to play it at all. Others are saying we're going to fact check um, every uh, breath he takes in this speech. And I just hope they extend the same courtesy to those who offer the rebuttal, although they tend to up here at the same talking point, so I doubt that will be the case. Anyway, at 6 o'clock p.m. tonight, the president will address the nation on national security issues. Well, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop can proceed with his lawsuit against the state of Colorado after a judge refused to dismiss the case as the state had requested. Well, Jack Phillips has accused the Colorado Civil Rights Commission of anti-religious bias because it punished him for refusing to bake a cake celebrating a gender transition. Now, Phillips, represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, filed suit when the state chose to prosecute him even after he won his case at the U.S. Supreme Court in June. Judge Wiley Y. Daniel of the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado ruled the suit against the state can move forward. Colorado was acting in bad faith and with bias toward Jack the ADF senior counsel, Jim Campbell, said of the uh, the court's decision, we look forward to moving forward with this suit to ensure that Jack isn't forced to create custom cakes that express messages to conflict with his faith. Now, there's no doubt that the individual requesting the cake uh, be made for this uh, celebration knew the history, and perhaps uh, this was part of a strategy to ultimately uh, run him out of business. But the Colorado Civil Rights Commission said Phillips discriminated against Denver attorney Autumn uh, Scardina, an attorney, again, who would know the case, uh, because she's transgender. Now, Phillips' shop refused to make a cake last year that was blue on the inside, pink on the uh, outside, or the other way around, after Scardina revealed she wanted to celebrate her transition from male to female. Now, they would not have refused to bake a cake uh, for her as an individual for any other occasion, but to celebrate something that violated his deeply held religious beliefs, he was unwilling to do and felt that that was covered by the decision made by the Supreme Court last year. Well, she asked for the cake on the same day the U.S. Supreme Court announced it would consider Phillips' appeal to the previous commission ruling against him. In that 2012 case, he refused to make a wedding cake for same-sex couple Charlie Craig and Dave Mullins. Well, the Supreme Court ruled in June that the Colorado Commission showed anti-religious bias uh, when it sanctioned Phillips for refusing to make the cake, voting 7-2, that it violated his First Amendment rights. But the court did not rule on the larger issue of whether businesses can invoke religious objections to refuse service to gay and lesbians. Well, Phillips' lawsuit alleges that Colorado violated his First Amendment right to practice his faith and 14th Amendment right to equal protection, and it seeks $100,000 in punitive damages from Aubrey uh, Elanis, director of the Colorado Civil Rights Division. Well, the Deputy Attorney General Leanne Morell told um, Daniel that the commission did not mention religion in its latest finding against Phillips. She said the commission also has used the state's anti-discrimination law to protect people who have faced bias because of their faith. Well, the judge said he thought that the Supreme Court's ruling had more relevance in the current case than the state acknowledged and quoted from the justice's opinion during the hearing. 
He mentioned now-retired Justice Anthony Kennedy's conclusion that the commission had shown hostility toward religion. Well, in the lawsuit, Phillips' attorney says he believes, as a matter of religious conviction, that sex, the status of being male or female, is given by God, is biologically determined, and is not determined by uh, perceptions or feelings and cannot be chosen or changed. It claims Phillips has been harassed and received death threats and that his small shop was vandalized while the wedding cake case made its way through the court. So this is the latest salvo in that long-running conflict in Colorado. Meanwhile, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio today announced plans to launch the largest, most comprehensive plan in the nation to guarantee health care coverage for all city residents, including those in the um, country illegally. Health care is a right, not a privilege reserved for those who cannot, who can rather afford it, de Blasio said in a statement. While the federal government works to gut health care for millions of Americans, New York City is leading the way by guaranteeing that every New Yorker has access to quality, comprehensive access to care, regardless of immigration status or their ability to pay. Now, speaking of the ability to pay, the big question is how will New York pay for this uh, large endowment. Well, the liberal mayor said that the plan will serve the 600,000 New Yorkers who don't have insurance by strengthening New York City's public health insurance option, Metro Plus. It will also guarantee health care access to those ineligible for insurance, including illegal immigrants who live in New York. That program, NYC Care, will launch this summer and will cost uh, at least $100 million annually at full scale, the city said. Now, those estimates are historically inaccurate in that they tend to exceed the uh, estimate uh, rather dramatically. We saw that with Obamacare. We'll see how closely that $100 million annual um, uh, cost uh, actually ends up reflecting what happens. Well, in a tweet, de Blasio said the plan will ensure the first stop for people isn't the emergency room. He argued that preventative care and access to primary care doctors will cut down on emergency room visits. But it's not clear how the program will be funded. And Republicans swiftly objected to using taxpayer dollars to pay for health care for those in the country illegally. Our citizens have hard enough time covering their own health care costs. Nicole, um, a member of the New York State Assembly who represents Brooklyn and Staten Island, tweeted, now New York mayor also wants them to pay for health care of 300,000 citizens of 300,000 citizens of other countries. Uh, He must stop abusing the middle class and treating us like um, his personal ATM. Well, de Blasio, his announcement rather, came after California's new Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, outlined a similarly ambitious health care agenda for his state, aimed at offering more benefits to illegal immigrants and protecting the Affordable Care Act. Medi-Cal, the state's health insurance program, now um, will let illegal immigrants remain on the rolls until they are 26, up from 19, according to Newsom's new agenda. The de Blasio administration said Tuesday that all services will be affordable on a sliding scale. Now, we don't know what doctors and medical associations are saying about that new scale, but the health care programs will include customer-friendly call lines to help New Yorkers make appointments with general practitioners, cardiologists, pediatricians, gynecologists, and a full spectrum of health care services, the news release said. So keep your eye on New York and California as they undertake uh, this health care for all plan. Well, net neutrality mania was so intense one year ago that FCC chairman Ajit Pai had to cancel his appearance at the Consumer Electronics Show because of death threats he'd received. That was the same day the FCC published its final rule repealing net neutrality. It was a year ago that uh, Zealots warned that its repeal would spell doom for a free and open Internet. 
It couldn't have been more wrong, at least one year since. Well, so-called experts predicted that removing this cumbersome Obama-era regulatory scheme, which granted the FCC virtually unchecked power over Internet providers, would lead to the demise of the Internet. Repealing net neutrality regulations would be the final pillow in the Internet's face. That's according to the New York Times. The ACLU said it risks erosion of the biggest free speech platform the world has ever known. CNET declared that net neutrality repeal means your Internet may never be the same. And CNN labeled repeal the end of the Internet as we know it. Well, these providers uh, have done a fair enough job on their own without net neutrality to undermine confidence in the system. But one of the Democratic commissioners on the FCC claimed that repealing net neutrality would green light to our nation's largest broadband providers to engage in anti-consumer practices, including blocking, slowing down traffic and paid prioritization of online applications and services. There were protests and lawsuits. The biggest companies on the Internet mounted online campaigns. Democrats vowed to make net neutrality a major campaign issue. Well, what actually happened? And we're talking about a year later. None of the horror stories came true. In fact, average Internet speeds climbed by roughly a third last year. The number of homes with access to fiber Internet jumped 23 percent last year, according to the Fiber Broadband Association. Oh, and net neutrality was a uh, non-issue in the Democratic midterm campaigns. One party official said that Democrats uh, didn't campaign on it because it's not something that people bring up in their top list of concerns. Hmm. Well, in a statement last week, Pai said that the FCC's light touch approach is working. Meanwhile, at this year's CES, the industry will highlight the promise of 5G Internet, which allows uh, speeds of 100 times faster than the current wireless networks. D-Link plans to showcase the 5G router that will let homeowners cut uh, the cord and still get speeds 40 times uh, faster. Well, not only will speed claim um, or rather climb exponentially, but 5G will inject uh, still more competition in the Internet provider market. Even net neutrality advocates should be willing to admit that there's no need for massive federal regulatory system and a highly competitive market. Well, the only question that remains is whether those net neutrality zealots will apologize to the public for repeatedly crying wolf. We'll see as this year passes and we begin the new year of net neutrality. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton has departed Turkey despite not meeting with the Turkish President Erdogan, who has uh, angered over the American demand that Turkey not attack Kurdish fighters after the U.S. pulls out of Syria. Erdogan has accused Bolton of making a serious mistake in complicating the president's Syria a drawdown with conditions by mandating final plans and a U.S. departure would happen until Turkey guaranteed it would not target Kurdish fighters with the People's Protection Units. Turkey views the group as the offshoot of an Iraqi-based Kurdish Workers' Party, a separatist group. They consider them to be terrorists. Well, President Trump abruptly announced late last year that the U.S. would completely pull out of its, uh, rather pull out its 2,000 troops from Syria, tweeting that the mission to defeat ISIS was complete, while the assertion has been largely debated by the international community, given that the terrorist group still holds land pockets in the war-ravaged country. The president has since doubled down, saying NATO ally Turkey will uh, take charge of the final military cleanup. 
Well, the move quickly prompted resignations from Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, top-ranking special envoy to defeat ISIS, Brett McGurk, and many Republicans in Congress joined Democrats in questioning the president's call for a quick withdrawal of the troops. Well, the issue has also drawn criticism and concern from the YPG, which was instrumental in partnering with the U.S. as the ground force to defeat ISIS. But that hasn't swayed the Turkish government, which calls the YPG a terrorist group. Uh, If they are terrorists, we will do what is necessary, no matter where they came from, Erdogan told his parliament, insisting that they will not be making compromises on this point and that he and Mr. Trump had come to a clear understanding until different voices started emerging from different segments of the administration, referring, of course, to U.N. uh, U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. While Erdogan claimed there was no need for him to meet with Bolton on the matter, the National Security Advisor is said to have met with other Turkish officials with talks centered on how the United States would collect the weapons distributed uh, to the Turkish fighters throughout the anti-ISIS campaign. According to Turkish uh, uh, newspaper, uh, Ankara is also seeking the U.S. to either hand over its military bases in Syria or destroy them. And in the New York Times opinion article on Monday, Erdogan asserted that Turkey is the only country with the power and commitment to complete the task of defeating terrorists in the region and is volunteering to shoulder the heavy burden at a critical time in history. We'll see what happens from this point forward. But Mr. Bolton is headed home without that uh, much anticipated meeting. Um, And we'll see whose uh, view prevails. Meanwhile, the uh, military has approved conditions-based Syria withdrawal plan. The U.S.-led coalition fighting there has approved a now-in-motion plan for withdrawing the U.S. troops from Syria that is conditions-based with no timeline, according to the Pentagon spokesperson. Operation Inherent Resolve has an approved framework for the withdrawal of forces from Syria and is now engaged in executing that withdrawal, Commander Sean Robertson said in a statement. That framework is conditions-based and will not subject troop withdrawal to an arbitrary timeline. Now, does that conflict with what the president announced? The framework will be influenced by a number of factors, including weather, he went on to say. The statement is the latest update of the planned length of uh, Uh, drawdown, which has been stretched out since the president first announced on the 19th of December that he ordered troops to begin leaving Syria and said that they were coming back now. Administration officials uh, said at the time that he ordered forces to begin leaving Syria in 30 days. The president also declared the U.S. had defeated ISIS in Syria, which he has since walked back, tweeting on the 31st of last month that the group, it was mostly gone. The president later extended the pullout timeline to four months, but National Security Advisor John Bolton said over the weekend that U.S. forces would remain in Syria until the last of ISIS is defeated. The withdrawal is also stipulated on the administration securing a guarantee from Turkey that it will not attack Kurdish forces in Syria who have been allied with the United States, Bolton said. And as you've just heard, Erdogan is having none of it. The Pentagon's latest statement adds to that the United States will continue to provide support to the coalition's operations in Syria while withdrawing troops in a strong, deliberate and coordinated manner in order to ensure U.S. forces safety and protection. Noting a concern for operational security, Robertson said the Pentagon will not discuss specific troop movement or timeline. The plan to provide a periodic update on progress regarding percentages of equipment removed from Syria. He added that the OIR mission um, has not changed and U.S. forces will continue to fight to achieve an enduring defeat of ISIS. 
We will continue to work with partners and allies to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS through sustained military gains and promoting regional security and stability. We thank every member of the coalition for their contributions to the fight against ISIS, Robertson went on to say. Lawmakers in both major parties have criticized the president's decision to withdraw troops, arguing that an abrupt pullout could destabilize the region and strengthen ISIS. The decision precipitated uh, James Mattis' uh, resignation as defense secretary, as you might recall, late last year. Uh, But according to the military, they have now approved a conditions-based Syria withdrawal. So it leaves uh, in question what precisely we can anticipate. Uh, So we'll continue to follow that, um, that story. There's an interesting study that was recently conducted that says that men face more discrimination than women. Well, feminists say that women are the most oppressed gender and that men live in a haven of patriarchal rule. Well, a new study from the University of Essex and the University of Missouri-Columbia and published in the journal PLOS One, P-L-O-S One, says otherwise. Women are better off in more countries than men are, a new study found, reports the, uh, the Daily Mail. A method that assesses the forms of hardship and discrimination facing men and women is revealed. Males have it harder in 91 countries out of 134. Women are disadvantaged in only 43. Now, we don't want to see either male or female disadvantaged, but this is an interesting study. The study showed that the U.K., the U.S., and Australia all favored women, while Italy, Israel, and China favored men. The numbers were factored because on men receiving harsher punishment for the same crime, compulsory military service, and more occupational deaths than women. Well, the study differs from that of the commonly issued Global Gender Gap Index. It included certain factors that specifically affect men. This new method, the Basic Index of Gender Inequality, focuses on varying aspects of life and measures overall satisfaction. It's broken down. The closer the um, score is to zero, the greater the level of uh, equality in the country. Zero is a perfect score indicating absolute parity between genders. And Italy came the closest with a score of 0.00021, slightly favoring males. The top ranked nation uh, to favor women over men is claimed to be Saudi Arabia uh, with a score of 0.001554. So it does call into question what criterion did they use there? I think Saudi Arabian women are just now permitted to drive. It is a negative number. Uh, if it's a negative number, it indicates females are better off. And if the score is uh, positive, it shows males are less discriminated against. For example, Guatemala and Albania came in as the 17th and 18th ranked countries, respectively, for equality, and had a score a similar Um, distance from zero. Guatemala is a better environment for men with a score of 012198, uh, whereas Albania is better for women with a different score. The index is based on three factors, educational opportunities, healthy life expectancy, and overall life satisfaction. Well, no existing measure of gender inequality fully captures the hardships that are disproportionately experienced by men in many countries. And so they don't fully capture the extent to which any specific country is promoting the well-being of all its citizens, says Professor Stroud, one of the um, chief study organizers. Uh, The study provides a much simpler way of tackling gender inequality, and it focuses on aspects of life that are directly relevant to all people. It's an interesting 
uh, study. But again, given some of the outcomes, it does raise questions about whether or not it actually reflects what's happening on the ground. Meanwhile, according to the American Psychological Association or the APA, being a traditional male is now considered on par with a mental disorder. Now, I don't know how they're defining traditional man, uh, but it is apparently a disorder being male. For the first time ever, the APA has issued a set of guidelines for how to approach men and boys specifically within a counseling practice. The new APA protocols for mental health professionals working with men and boys released in August and available to read in their entirety in a document titled APA Guidelines for the Psychological Practice with Boys and Men were recently summed up on the AP's website by the statement that research finds that traditional masculinity is, on the whole, harmful. The main thrust of the subsequent research is that traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression is on the whole harmful. The January article from the APA goes on to read men socialized in this way are less likely to engage in healthy behaviors. So there you have it. Traditional masculinity. Harmful. That's the APA. Wouldn't be the first time they got it wrong. 30 minutes after 5 o'clock, that's the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, later this hour, we're going to take a look back at the life and legacy of H.B. London, who inspired Pastor Appreciation uh, Month in October, the month he passed away, but much, much more. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, last month, 60 Minutes reported on the effects of screen time on American children. The unsettled segment concerned a groundbreaking study by the National Institutes of Health that confirms how screens affect brain development. The study's initial data involving about 4,500 kids detected significant differences in the brains of children using screens like tablets or smartphones for more than seven hours a day. Early findings can't determine if these differences indicate harmful or beneficial effects, but the NIH study does show a link between children's screen time and lower scores on cognitive tests. The report raises troubling questions about immersive use of technology devices in the young. As uh, prominent psychologists told CNN's Anderson Cooper, smartphones should be a tool that you use, not a tool that uses you. Well, no tool epitomizes screen technology impacts like the iPhone Since its release in 2007, the device has distorted reality and disrupted daily routines for adults. For children, it's becoming a cognitive appendage. According to nonprofit Common Sense Media, 98% of homes with children have mobile devices. 42% of young children now have their own tablets, up from 1% in 2011. And rather than resisting this whole influence, school systems are welcoming it. For young students and even preschoolers, screens have become a portal for understanding the world. Educators embrace technology's supremacy, believing that screen time will prepare their students for the working world. Code.org is a nonprofit. It's backed by companies like Google, Facebook. They spread the tech gospel. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the organization has enjoyed remarkable success in advancing its agenda by offering free programs for schools and through a social media savvy marketing campaign and lobbying effort. Well, the, uh, the efforts have paid off. As the Inquirer reported, 25% of all U.S. students have Code.org accounts. 800,000 teachers use the site for class lessons. Well, in the fusion of education and technology, helping, um, or is it helping kids? The Atlantic, uh, Rob Walters, uh, rather Waters, uh, explored the effect of classroom technology on academic outcomes. And he cites 
an organization of economic cooperation and development report that was released a couple of years ago in 2015 that found technology is of little help in bridging the skill divide between advantaged and disadvantaged students. Now, he visited the learning lab of a charter school that serves low-income students in San Jose, California, where one concerned teacher told him, I'm not anti-technology, but I'm definitely for minimizing it. Is the technology in my classroom going to preserve or enhance human connection? Well, the question lies at the heart of the ironic new class division between Silicon Valley parents who understand all too well the dangers of gadgets for young children. In fact, many of those who are at the heads of these organizations limit the screen time that their children have access to. And the Heartlands Middle School and working class families whose children are increasingly saturated in screen time. In October, the New York Times profiled how play-based preschools now thrive in prosperous neighborhoods, ensuring that children play with traditional toys, develop interaction skills, and avoid the glow of tablet screens. But screen-based preschools continue to expand, too, often with federal grant funding in states like Idaho and Wyoming. As the Times reported, a state-funded preschool offered exclusively online now serves approximately 10,000 children in Utah. Despite intensifying concerns about technology's uh, efforts on childhood, or rather effects on childhood development, Apple and Google compete ferociously to get products into schools and target students at any age when brand loyalty begins to form. Well, as the National Institutes of Health study progresses, Americans We'll learn more about how screens harm children's brains, but we already know that tablet screens compromise attentiveness, induce agitation, distort perceptive, and and, uh, hinder interaction. Speaking on 60 Minutes, a pediatrician, Dimitri Christakis, he confirmed screens' effect on babies, noting that skills learned on iPads, such as stacking virtual blocks, don't translate into physical skills. They don't transfer the knowledge from one dimension to three. Well, throughout 2018, Big Tech's... um, Uh, Privacy breaches from Facebook's um, data exploitation to social media's ecosystem for foreign-funded misinformation made the news. Perhaps the most overlooked story, though, addressed on 60 Minutes is how Silicon Valley, through education marketing, has hooked a new generation on its products. As Athena Shaveria, who works with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, told The Times, I'm convinced the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. As a result, more and more children face futures deprived of natural wonder, a high enough price to pay, but one likely to rise as we learn more about technology's cognitive effect on young brains. Something certainly to think about. Well, as I've uh, mentioned throughout the program today, for the first time uh, the, in prime time since President Trump took office, all eyes are on the Oval Office. The president is preparing to deliver his first ever evening address from the storied room in the White House's West Wing at 9 p.m. Eastern time, 6 o'clock p.m. our time. With a protracted uh, partial government shutdown over funding for his proposed southern border wall. Meanwhile, Democratic leaders have been prepping an immediate response, which is kind of difficult to prep a response if you haven't heard the speech. But nonetheless, they've been uh, prepping for the immediate response while top Republican senators made clear they don't know exactly what to expect. With the nation's second longest government shutdown in history entering its 18th day, make that 17th day, I believe, and rhetoric reaching an apparent infection uh, point, um, media uh, prognostication and political analysis uh, today raised a series of pivotal but unanswered questions. Will some networks choose not to air the president's speech in full or attempt to fact check his statements Live, as many have threatened to do. And will the president, as he was uh, as uh, he has suggested repeatedly, 
in recent uh, days announced that he will use his emergency powers to build the wall, even without congressional funding. How will Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi handle their unusual nationally televised tandem response to the president's remark, which is in and of itself rather unusual. And the White House requested eight minutes to make the president's case on television and invited representatives from cable news outlets to a White House lunch with the president ahead of the address, a gesture that is typically reserved for the lead up to the State of the Union speech, which will be coming sometime this month as well. Regardless of what transpires, uh, negotiations are slated to continue throughout the week to resolve the shutdown which has furloughed 380,000 federal workers and forced an additional 420,000 to work without pay. Uh, On Wednesday, it's been learned the president will head to Capitol Hill for a policy lunch with Senate Republicans. Congressional leaders from both parties have been invited to the White House for a 3 p.m. Eastern time sit down afterward. On Thursday, the president plans a personal visit to the Mexican border, where his administration says an illegal immigration crisis is worsening by the day. The number of illegal border crossings is down from 1.6 million in 2000 to less than 400,000 last year. But the number of families coming over the border has risen sharply, putting a strain on health care and immigration services that came into sharp focus with the deaths of two migrant children in December. Administration figures show that 161,000 family units crossed the border in fiscal 2018, a a remarkable 50 percent increase from the year before. Homeland Security officials have also said 60,000 unaccompanied children crossed the border last year, a 25 percent increase. South Carolina Republican Senate uh, Senator Lindsey Graham says that he doesn't know what the president will say during his primetime address, but he added that the president ideally will not use his presidential emergency powers in order, uh, rather, to order the military to construct a border wall, saying that passing a, a spending bill in Congress is the better way to tackle the issue. In the absence of that option, however, one wonders whether or not the president will, in fact, um, declare emergency. Now, one would hope that we would have politically neutral fact checkers. That's not likely. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, the president will speak uh, this evening at 6 o'clock p.m. our time, which is uh, a little over 15 minutes. If you'd like to hear what the president has to say about the what he is calling a national security crisis and what his detractors will say in response, you can tune in virtually um, any of the networks or cable news networks for that uh, for that information. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk about the death of H.B. London, who inspired the Pastor Appreciation Month. He died in October, and I apologize for only now drawing attention to the passing of uh, a great man, a personal friend, someone I had great respect and high regard for. But that's coming up in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, among other things, we're going to talk with Art Alley. He's the founder and president of the Timothy Plan. It's biblically responsible investing. It encourages you and provides a tool for you to determine when I'm making investments. Is the thing they produce, the work they do, consistent with my Christian worldview? So we're going to talk with Art Alley about that. And uh, we'll do some other things as well. We're working on a couple of other interviews. And then on Thursday, I'm looking forward to talking with retired judge Tom Cole. He, along with um, Rich um, Jones from Calvary, Calvary Chapel Hillsboro, 
are the founders of Paid in Full. We're going to get the latest uh, from him, the ministry that's developing here in the state of Oregon that gives uh, prisoners an opportunity to attend seminary. It is modeled after a similar program in other parts of the country. Uh, they had a fundraiser just before the, uh, the end of the year, and uh, we'll talk about all of that uh, when he joins me on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're looking forward to our first Fun Friday of 2019. We're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about James Blend and the 15-year anniversary serving as the producer of this program, uh, what that has um, meant for him. How did he get here in the first place? How did he... Uh, get that gig in particular, what else he does around here, and just to celebrate um, all things James Blend. So we'll uh, spend a little time on that on Friday as well. One of the things that um, I failed to do last year was to call attention to the death of someone who, for me personally, was very meaningful uh, and has been a part of the KPDQ family, although indirectly. H.B. London, who served with Focus on the Family for a number of years, uh, passed away back in October, and I think because it was so personal, it was um, the father of a very dear friend, a personal friend, it didn't occur to me to do what I'm going to do today, and that is to talk a little bit about the life and legacy of H.B. London. He was focused on the fam- uh, worked with Focus on the Family. He inspired Pastor Appreciation Day, and uh, ra- rather, Pastor Appreciation Month, and he devoted the latter part of his life um, encouraging pastors who face significant and unique challenges in serving as shepherds. Christianity Today and their eulogy said that over more than 60 years of serving pastors and serving as a pastor himself, over 60 years, former Focus on the Family Vice President H.B. London built up better spiritual supports for clergy and popularized the annual Pastor Appreciation Month held each October. He dedicated his final years in ministry to pastoring a church in a retirement community in Southern California where he preached his final sermon aptly titled Pastors Are People Too. That was on the 7th of October. He died um, the week later at the age of 81. Now, he was a very popular pastor, as you uh, many of you know, here in Oregon as well. It seems ironically appropriate that H.B. London's homegoing took place in October, as this is Clergy Appreciation Month, a movement which he tirelessly championed for many years. That's a quote from Focus on the Family president, Jim Daly, in a tribute. Well, during H.B. London's two decades at Focus on the Family, he built up new ministries to reach church leaders and their families, cultivating an unprecedented role as pastor to pastors, which he has tirelessly filled ever since. Um, even amidst his recent health struggles, uh, Daly said, referencing his um, uh, interview series with pastors. Well, the ministry began promoting Clergy Appreciation Month as a national observance back in 1992, just a few years after the former um, Church of Nazarene pastor joined focus, uh, focus on the family, rather, at a, the request of founder James Dobson, his cousin. I've never known anyone who worked harder than H.B. Uh, that was the indefatigable energy that he had because he loved his work and he loved pastors. That's a quote from James Dobson in a statement reported by CBN. H.B. wanted to do everything that he could to help them cope with the trials and struggles that are, uh, that are coming their way. Well, as the vice president for church and clergy, a division he founded, H.B. London, a f- uh, fourth-generation minister, pulled from 31 years of experience behind the pulpit to develop resources and support for pastors and their family. The theme of our ministry became every Moses needs an Aaron, which means that every Moses, meaning the pastor, needs someone to hold up their arms in the midst of battle to encourage them to affirm them, he said in one interview. Well, the octogenarian uh, continued to hold the title of pastor to pastors in 
Emeritus for Focus on the Family and shared reflections on ending a career in ministry in his last article for the organization in 2018. Are you planning on living forever? I realize that it can be difficult, but part of your job is to help find your successor, he advised fellow aging pastors. It's time to give back and share your wisdom with others. Just make sure that you don't cruise to the end of your ministry. Uh, be aware and productive to its conclusion. Well, H.B. London led at Friendship Church Sun City for seven years up until he ended chemotherapy treatment and entered hospice care on the 12th of October. There are some people who uh, have been uniquely called by God and gifted by God to carry a load others can't bear alone. That's a quote from Moody Radio host Chris Fabre uh, following London's death. H.B. was one of those people. A native of Arkansas, H.B. London attended Pasadena College, now Point Loma Nazarene University, and Nazarene Theological Seminary, and went on to pastor churches in Oregon and California. He survived by his wife, two children, one of whom works right here at KPDQ, Brad London, and four grandchildren. Trust me, it goes fast, he told Focus readers earlier this year. I always like to remind my people that the Lord loves them as, as if they were the only person to love. All ministry is... One, one, love is the greatest power and force in the world, and a pastor and his ministry must be punctuated by a love for his people. I have always found it to be true. If you love people, they will love you back. Well, H.B. London went home to be with the Lord on the 16th of October uh, and lived to see his 81st year. And as I mentioned, I uh, failed to reflect on his life and legacy at the time because I felt quite personally wrapped up in it, and it just occurred to me that we hadn't really uh, focused on that at all. And given the fact that H.B. London had been a pastor, very popular pastor here in Oregon for a number of years, he had come back to the Portland area to speak at our pastor appreciation events on several occasions. Uh, it it uh, struck me as a disservice to fail to spend a little time remembering the life and legacy of H.B. London. In closing, uh, one scripture comes to mind when I consider the life and legacy of this great man of faith. I have fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's from 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Oh, how I hope and pray that those words will ring true uh, when I've breathed my last breath. H.B. Uh, London. October 16th, 2018. I should also mention in my defense, I was preparing right at that time, in fact, a couple of days later, uh, to leave uh, to go to India for a short-term mission trip, and that also made it a bit more of a challenge. But uh, nonetheless, I did want to spend a little time uh, re reflecting on the life and legacy of H.B. London, who passed away in California on the 16th of October of last year, and he died of complications related to cancer. And as I mentioned, he uh, remained in the pulpit, I believe, until the 7th of October. So that says so much about H.B. London. Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to uh, talking with Art Alley. He's the founder and president of the Timothy Plan, Biblically Responsible Investing. And if you'd like to know whether or not the um, choices you make in terms of uh, the investments that you make, maybe that's your a retirement portfolio, and you may not be controlling that yourself, it's quite possible to find out if you're, for example, uh, helping to underwrite Planned Parenthood. Well, if that's the case and you have convictions to the contrary, it's possible 
to make some changes. So we'll talk with him about that again, among other things. Want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.